the role of the pollster in the campaign is to represent the voters in the room. It's like you're almost like the advocate for the voters. The job really isn't to make the candidate feel good or the candidate to feel bad, but it's just to have the most accurate read on the voters. So what they want and their desires and their challenges is being reflected within the campaign. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is longtime political pollster and the polling director for Change Research, Stephen Claremont. Stephen learned his trade working for Hickman Brown Research, Princeton Survey Research Associates, and for many years as research director at Every Child Matters. We had a good conversation about Stephen's career in politics and polling, and how now at Change Research, which is an affordable online polling firm, his work differs from more conventional polling operations. Stephen's a good guest for the show. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Stephen Claremont. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Stephen, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, my name is Stephen Claremont. I am a pollster, polling director at Change Research, and I've been doing public opinion polling in one form or another since I graduated from college in 1993. I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, went to college in Berkeley, and pretty much came to D.C. as soon as I could. I think Newton has a high school that my mom taught at right out of college. And so somehow I feel weirdly connected to that town. Either Newton North or Newton South. I went to Newton South. What was that town like as a place to grow up for you? It was good. I didn't sort of realize how sheltered it is. It's close to Boston. It's right outside of Boston, but it is very suburban and very sort of high pressure, high achieving environment. A few years ago, I was reading a book about Whitey Bulger and South Boston and the Boston mob, and then sort of realized it's just like, that was only about like 10 or 15 miles away where sort of he operated and where all these murders happened. And it couldn't have been further away from it because it's just like in, in Newton, it's like the drive to achieve, the drive to get into a good college. At least sort of my parents sort of drove me towards and very sort of academically competitive, but very different from most of the world that's outside of it. What did your parents do? My mom was a teacher. She was an elementary school teacher until I was born. And then she went back and taught early ed. She ran a preschool for several decades before she retired a few years ago. And my dad was a management consultant for a consulting company in Lexington. Worked for a bank before that. Still not entirely sure what management consultants actually do, but not sure he could easily answer that either. So probably wasn't that easy to come out of a town like that and go to a place like Berkeley. I mean, a lot of competition to go to schools like that. Yeah, I kind of got lucky to get into Berkeley. I originally applied and got rejected and then sent in a postcard basically to be considered for spring enrollment and to realize how much they anticipated people leaving after the first semester and sort of got in that way. And then sort of got in at a time also where I was able to pay in-state tuition after a year, which I would never be able to do now. So it was like really cheap education, but it was actually a little bit less competitive at Berkeley than it was in Newton South. It was like way more stressed out about academics and performing and like staying up late to write papers and stuff. And actually in a lot of ways, Berkeley was a lot easier, especially because I also take 
classes I want to take, like political science and economics, and don't have to take Spanish or hard science or anything like that. What was the draw of political science and economics? Why was that what you wanted to take? I thought about this, and when I was nine in the fourth grade, my parents were like, weren't like political, like focused on like national politics or talking about national politics all the time then. They unfortunately talk about it way too much now. Like my mother will call me up and scream about Lindsey Graham or Joe Manchin or something. It's just like, I, I don't really think like 30 years ago, you'd be really caring about sort of this nuance, but that's what MSNBC does to people. But they were active very locally. A lot of it was saving our elementary school from being closed. I think they were asked to be like delegates or something for John Anderson in 1980 that it's for some reason I was fascinated by and then would like, read the paper every day and like after every primary there'd be sort of this wall on the front page of all the candidates that I would just sort of stare at and like wonder why Bob Dole was at one percent and ended up watching I think the debate where Reagan claimed he bought the microphone and the day he was shot my mother sort of called me from the end of the street and I ran up as fast as I could and sat in front of the TV and, and I'd go to my grandparents over the summer and my grandmother was a true news junkie. Like she read two papers a day. They talked politics and news a lot. And my father's father was even more of a junkie. He was a hardcore Republican. He talked about politics all the time and said he like cursed Roosevelt every day of his life until he cashes for a social security check. So we talked about like the 1980 election, Reagan, he tried to brainwash me about how great Reagan was. That was sort of always what was in the background. Like eighth grade, I wrote social studies report on the 1984 presidential election, which turned into this massive undertaking of summarizing every, every primary and caucus. I mean, it was not really normal, but that was always what I was interested in. After the 92 election, was pretty focused on moving to D.C. and working more on the candidate consulting side than on campaigns, because I really had no idea how to actually work on a campaign then. Was there any professor in political science there that stuck with you? Jack Citron was the first professor I had who focused on American politics and political psychology, who was the most sort of only sort of real class I took that was focused on American politics. Berkeley was very competitive to actually get into the classes and signing up on waiting lists. And I did take a public opinion research class with Merrill Shanks. That was very theoretical, and it was a lot more interesting when we got into like dissecting crosstabs, but most of it was studying the text of the American voter. So how did you land that first job when you came to D.C.? It was a Friday afternoon in the spring, and I didn't want to study for finals, and it was too early to meet my friends at the bar, so I went to the Career Planning and Placement Center. And then like, there were these big binders of job ads and went through the binder and found about three or four, including one for Hickman Brown Research, and wrote out the cover letter, sent it in. And I was pretty much set after graduating to drive to DC. And I think the day before, the job I had to make money was delivering cash register paper around the Bay Area. And someone plowed into my car and totaled my car. And then I was just like, well, not quite sure how I'm actually going to get to D.C. And the very next day, I got a call from Harrison Hickman's office saying, can you be in D.C. in this date for this interview? And Dad sent me his frequent flyer miles to jump on a plane to go. And I think it was like the interviewing process took about a month, but then got an offer that summer. I was there for about seven years after that. I think, you know, I interviewed Harrison for the podcast at one point. I did. I enjoyed it. I think like a lot of people who've been around for a long time, it's always interesting to hear their perspective about American politics. What was it like to work for him and to work for that firm? It was very intense. It was the fall of 93 and Harrison was polling for Mary Sue Terry, who was a Virginia attorney general who was running for governor. And I think I got there early with the senior analyst because we were expecting the, the final data to come in from the phone bank. And as often happens, you get on the bulletin board to pull down the data and realize they, they didn't hit the target number of interviews and they needed another day. And Harrison was so angry, he punched a wall and broke his hand. 
Ouch. And was screaming and yelling that the data wasn't in. I was a little bit taken aback. I was sort of in the back office that could, could hear all of it. And he was just like, came in and apologized. I'm so, sorry about that, but I just, I work too hard. So it's like, the part of the campaign, especially on that level, is like, you expect something to be delivered at a certain time. And if you don't have it, it sort of reflects poorly on you because it's like, the poll guides the ad decisions, it guides the strategic decisions, and you can't just like randomly lose 24 hours because the phone bank didn't get your data in time and didn't bother to call you even at midnight to tell you that they weren't going to do that. I think it was always sort of intense, but I don't think it's any different than most campaign environments. You work very hard in the two months from Labor Day to Election Day of even-numbered years, depending on the campaign and the primary like I think in 1995, I was up almost every day till two in the morning getting data in for this guy who was running for governor of Kentucky and lost in the primary. The higher the race and the more campaigns, like doing all the state polling for Al Gore was intense. I mean, it's intense to deliver the stuff accurately, make sure the phone bank is doing it correctly, which is sort of one of the more underappreciated parts of all the people who now talk and write about polling in the media don't really sort of even ask like who's doing the calling and what processes are they going through and what's the quality check and that's all very difficult but the thing i learned from harrison the thing he is the best at and i've always tried to take this from working for him is the role of the pollster in the campaign is to represent the voters in the room it's like you're almost like the advocate for the voters the job really isn't to make the candidate feel good or the candidate to feel bad, but it's just to have the most accurate read on the voters. So what they want and their desires and their challenges is being reflected within the campaign. And like whenever I've sort of deviated from that has always been when I've been mistaken. Like the goal is to be as neutral and as objective as possible. And that might not always lead to more business in the future, but I don't really know any other way that we are supposed to be. We are supposed to represent the voters and listen to their concerns and make sure the candidate is reflecting that in how they're doing all parts of their campaign. What were you learning about the voters? Like that were the things that surprised you? You're constantly asking questions for all those eight years or whatever it was. Yeah. What were you learning about campaigns and voters by doing that that you didn't know beforehand? But you sort of don't know what are the differences among different voters in different electorates. At that time in the 90s, when you're doing polling in Southern states, it's to know that older voters are the ones who are going to be most the coalition for a Democratic candidate, and that will shift over time. There isn't one perfect question that's going to get at what voters believe on an issue or what they actually want. So the challenge is asking the right question, but asking it in different ways to sort of see what's underlying their opinion. Like, okay, they're against abortion, but why? And to see just testing how firmly people are committed to different issues and different candidates is one of the more challenging things. And Part of it is just to know in a political geography, like how voters really are different and how they're the same as voters in the rest of the country. Particularly, like, are the things that are motivating older voters to vote for Democrats? Is that the legacy of programs that were developed when they were younger? Is it things that are being delivered to them now? Or what can a Republican do to actually like win these voters over? I think it's important to sort of understand history and understand like past trends, but also that American politics is continually dynamic, even though it might not feel that way in the moment. Things change a lot over time. And just sort of thinking about like, what are different issues? What are different approaches? Who are the voters who might be a smaller part of the electorate now, but are going to be a bigger part in future years? What are the things that are going to move them? A deeper understanding of like how to divide the electorate, both demographically and attitudinally, is, I think, always one of the more interesting challenges that we face. What were you thinking about polling as a business 
and public opinion as a business. I mean, you're in the middle of one, you're a junior and then a senior analyst at a firm like that. Did you, did you think about it as a business, as something that you wanted to run your own? What was your attitude towards that aspect of things? I don't think I ever really sort of thought about it running as my own. And sort of when I did, I almost sort of got, did that by accident. It is very challenging and competitive. You can sort of observe this from, from watching Harrison Hickman and Kirk Brown, all the different skills that you need to have. Being a good pollster is more than just like, can you provide accurate numbers and give accurate advice? It is marketing. How do you actually tell different campaigns why your polling is better or why you should hire me as opposed to any, anyone else? For the last 20 years, like pollsters have been fighting declining response rates. And so now like working for a company that does all internet research, it couldn't be sort of more different than what I started out doing. But it's like, how do you innovate to keep the same goal of having the largest pool of people to speak with? So innovation, marketing, doing public communications that are part of that marketing. There's a lot of different skills that you need to have if you're running things on your own, or you need to find people who are better at sales than you are, who are better at schmoozing clients, who are better at doing comms and being able to like highlight the quality work that you do. Working for a very small company, I mean, it was two partners. It was me. It was usually, other than the 2000 campaign, one or two other analysts to either have the choice of like trying to do all of those really well or trying to find the niche of what you do well, the client base that's going to hire you, and then just work on servicing that as opposed to like sort of maintaining relationships versus growing into a larger business. What do you think about? your own skill set. There's a broad swath of stuff there that I'm sure you're good at some of it, not at others. How do you think of yourself as a pollster? When I sort of decided to do run my own business full-time as a sole, sole analyst and marketing beyond just people I know who are looking for a poll or working connections of people that I pulled for in the past, marketing and sales is not my skill set. I went to a, one of the DLCC like happy hour events when they had all the different state caucus directors in. And I was sort of in this room and it was just like, I wanted to run away as quickly as I possibly could. And going up and starting a conversation and then talking about like how your polling is better than other polling. And I had this success in New Mexico, like do it in Washington state, like not really good at that at all. And when I joined Change Research and see like our sales team, the original co-founder, Pat Riley, is amazing at that and realized I will never be as good as Pat Riley or Flora Mendoza, who's working with her or any of our salespeople. And I should focus what I'm good at, which is writing questionnaires, analyzing data, working with clients, working with a team. It can be more frustrating than just sort of being on your own and deciding which clients to take and not take. But I did not realize how limiting that was going to be until... Um, had other opportunities. Well, tell me a little about your career after Hickman. Why'd you leave there? And then I guess you went to Princeton Survey Research for a bit and then a long time at Every Child Matters. Is that right? Yes. The Gore campaign was exceedingly draining and exceedingly frustrating on many levels, like starting at which it's like pretty much spending every day for two years, like opening up the Washington Post, New York Times, Al Gore is terrible. Al Gore is going to lose. And then as excruciating as that entire campaign was, and when it was over, how awful the whole post-election process was, wanted to do something different and didn't necessarily want to move on to the next campaign from that. Had the opportunity to work for Princeton Survey Research, which came through um, Professor Sam Popkin, came to Hickman Brown and worked on the Gore campaign. Princeton Survey was the like pollster phone bank for Pew Research Center. And so it was political, but it wasn't partisan. And I did learn a lot of different skills that I didn't at Hickman Brown, like sort of the rigorous process of waiting and rake waiting and multivariate waiting. We didn't sort of do that. 
we made small adjustments in, in weights at Hickman Brown, but this was a more rigorous way of doing this and learn different skills. But I, I realized after about a year that like a friend told me, it's just like, you're a political person. You should be doing political partisan polling. And the idea of like, was made to feel self-conscious that even sort of talking about politics from sort of an edgy partisan way was not appreciated, you know, regardless of even if most of the people there were not um, conservative Republicans. And saw this opportunity for Every Child Matters, which was sort of a startup nonprofit advocacy campaign arm. I think the original vision was to be sort of LCV or a PAC that focuses on kids' issues and uses it to bludgeon Republicans. So I had the opportunity to do that right at the beginning. We had a lot of success. It was before campaign finance reform. So a lot of the soft money that was being raised and spent there were by issue groups, not like big, all-encompassing C4, 527 super PACs. So I think like in Colorado, in the U.S. Senate race, there was LCV, NARAL, a bunch of groups that were doing issue ads. And we had a donor that wanted to do something different on the air. And we were campaigning against U.S. Senator Wayne Allard, who was running for re-election. And I went through all of his votes and he voted against creating the Children's Health Insurance Program, was like one of 15 votes, was the only vote on a program to try to prevent and treat fetal alcohol syndrome, which was sort of weird to be the one in a 99 to one vote. It was something that was sponsored by his Republican Senate colleague, Ben Nighthorse Campbell. And so we put basically an ad together of a child crying, sort of reading through his record and put it on the air, got front page coverage on it, like. Wayne Allard was very defensive in the debate two days later when the fetal alcohol syndrome vote was brought up. And it was a different way of thinking about politics. I wasn't sort of responsible for a polling deliverable. Could hire other pollsters to do research of what's going to work and what's not going to work. It was interesting to have the experience of working for an outside group and also just sort of really learning specific issues in depth and how to make them political and parts of campaigns. It sort of opened up a different side of Washington to me of the nonprofit advocacy world, which is very different from the political consulting campaign world. But it's like still trying to grapple with the same things, like how you make your issue or your beliefs more central in elections. Is Every Child Matter still around? No, they folded, um, the founder of it retired in 2014. I think they did some issue advocacy through the 2020 election in Iowa, New Hampshire. That That is something that we found over time is like the best place to talk about issues and do issue organizing and tries to raise the visibility of issues during presidential primaries in those early states. I just sort of don't know the specifics, but the sort of big funder started to wind down a bunch of projects. The really challenging part of that world is just trying to maintain general operating support from year to year and going through different fads of different funders. Like Every Child Matters was funded by Atlantic Philanthropies with a lot of similar groups for a while. And then they replaced program officer and that money went from like several million to zero. And that's a very, very difficult world to sustain fundraising. Like you really need to grow the group and footprint over time to be able to sustain. What was Third Eye Strategies? That was basically me. I had a friend who I worked with at Hickman Brown, basically a friend of his called him and say, oh, I hear you can do polls. He was, I think he was at graduate school at the time. And he reached out to me because I had contacts with a phone bank and I had cross-tabbing software. So he basically hired me to sort of help him do these projects. Didn't really charge that much, but it was like, it was his project. And he sort of looped me in with a client in New Mexico in 2003 for a project. And I was just like, oh, Thomas can write, like, he wrote this memo. Like, I did a lot of the work, and then Thomas wrote the memo, and I was just like, I couldn't do it, so I rewrote the memo. And he decided to run for office for state representative in uh, Wisconsin, and I kept working with the clients in New Mexico and client Eli Lee, who's been a consultant there for a long time. And we worked on bond initiative to stop road development in Albuquerque 
and were successful in 2003 by basically arguing that bonds are tax increases and use conservative messaging for the very liberal goal of stopping a road development project. And then through Eli, through a lot of consulting networks, would recommend me for different projects. So I worked for the Legislative House campaign starting in 2004 and lead to some a lot of other projects largely focused in New Mexico at the time. Didn't do a lot of marketing, um, but would just help help people when they needed help during the course of that time. And then in 2016, I decided to vote myself full-time to growing Third Eye Strategies and sort of found the big challenge was that I sort of thought that like providing the same type of experience and high-quality polling that you do for a candidate for governor or for U.S. House to state legislative candidates has value. And I, I didn't think that the sort of big D.C., New York firms would be as competitive in that space for that caucus work, mostly because my experience with Harrison Hickman was that he wasn't. But that turned out not to be true. So it's sort of stuck in between of can't sort of offer like ultra low cost polling like PPP or eventually change research but also don't have sort of the broad depth, big team approach that like a GQR or global strategy group or other big firms could do. I was pricing less than those big firms, but more than sort of the more economical pollsters. And the market really isn't there for that. I talked to Mike Greenfield about change research back in 2018. I think I got an update from him after the midterms seemed like a pretty interesting and different idea on how to do surveys, to do it online, to make other kinds of adjustments, to figure out interesting sources of obtaining public opinion in a way that was representative. How did you get connected to them and what were they like when you first got there? That is an interesting story. So my, my main client in New Mexico in 2016 was the New Mexico House Caucus. Leanne Leith took it over in 2016 after Democrats lost control in 2014. And there was new leadership that was brought in. And we won the five seats that we needed to win it back. And it was like in the fall of 2017, Leanne called me saying, we have this opportunity. We're being sold on this company called Change Research to do online polling. And Leanne is fairly innovative and always wants to do different things and always sort of wants to get as much data as she can from the swing house districts. And she's like, they say they can be able to do like online polling in our swing areas, which I was kind of skeptical about because at the time, most online polling was statewide and had to use panels. And there's really only like panels big enough for states like California and New York and I didn't fully understand it, although I was aware of change research. In the Virginia governor primary that year, they put out a poll that was very accurate on the Republican side, showing Ed Gillespie almost about to lose, that turned out to be right, but also at Tom Perriello beating Ralph Northam on the Democratic side, that didn't turn out to be right. And Leanne was like, yeah, they were accurate in Virginia, and as a snarky jerk that I was at the time, not anymore, was just like, oh yeah, well, they got the Democratic side wrong. And I remember it's like seeing that at the time and I'm just like, well, who, who is this Mike Greenfield? And looked him up on LinkedIn and it was like Silicon Valley, Stanford is just like, oh, great. And Silicon Valley is going to save polling now. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Leanne was interested in trying it. So we did a joint project where I did a phone poll and we, Mike did the online component and did a lot of open-ended questions and stuff that's really too expensive to do on the phone and worked with him on putting together the presentation and very easy, very friendly to work with, very different than certainly most political consultants. And so we presented the results and sort of went back and forth on it. It was like a good sort of working relationship. And then I went back and looked at the data because I always sort of worry when you have my data and then someone else's data, if they're different, like how do I explain like why that is and why it should go with mine? And when I put them up side by side and the questions that we asked that were similar, I was shocked to see that on most of it, it was exactly the same, including like the little nuances of polling. Like when you ask an issue question or agreement with a statement and you look at sort of the difference between like somewhat support, 
and strong support or strong agreement and strong disagreement. And my always sort of worry is like online polling would be sort of ultra engaged people that are going to have really strong opinions. And you're not going to have the people that like you might call and they're just like, sure, I have 10 minutes and can answer the survey. But then looked at it and it was just like, that's certainly not true. Like even like how closely do you follow state politics? Like the very closely number was almost the same between the phone and online. And sort of realized, okay, these are kind of the same people we're talking to and we're not getting ultra engaged people. The only real difference was that in the online polling, the favorability for the elected officials was much more unfavorable than on the phone. And I've always sort of thought that my numbers were always like a little too friendly on the phone. And it sort of like intuitively makes sense because I think people don't want to be perceived when they're talking to another human being as a crank. So if they say they hate everybody, they might come off as a crank. But online, you can just say, yeah, I dislike Joe Biden. I dislike Donald Trump. I dislike Ron DeSantis. Realize just sort of like that is a potential source of bias that's less. But I'm not like, it's not introducing more because I'm not getting people that are inherently like more plugged into politics using this method. So that would turn out to be a pleasant surprise and also the richness of the open-ended data that we got online where there was no filter from the interviewer, like summarizing what the person said, or there's an incentive when you're doing phone polling, since it's very expensive to not ask a lot of open-ended questions, not get into a lot of detail or have the interviewer like write things out exactly just because it just, every minute you spend on the phone is hundreds of thousands of dollars. So Mike and I kept talking, I sort of became more sort of aware of change research and saw a presentation that Jill Normington did on a partnership they did in Maine, which saw the same thing. The numbers were almost exactly the same on the issues and the nuance, just more negative towards the elected officials. And so it's like, that actually feels more correct. And like right around the same time, phone polling, like response rates kept declining and kept declining through many years. And then they sort of leveled off after 2012 to 2016, and then they fell another 50% after 2016. So the thing I kept finding in 2017, early 2018, was that my polls were becoming much more expensive to do, much harder to do, and a lot of phone bank time was disappearing. And I had a very bad experience in 2016 where I was forced to use a phone bank that I was not 100% sure of because nothing else was available. And I ended up flying out to the middle of the country to try to find the facility and ultimately found out that they were scamming me. There was no phone bank facility and had to throw out all the data and then start over from scratch. And it was a, one of the most horrible experiences that I've ever gone through. Wow. And in 2018, it was I had to do a project where I got a bid on it from the phone bank. This is what the response rate is. This is what we're going to charge you. And they got on the phone and it was harder for them to do. The response rate was lower. The cost was like, I was going to lose a lot of money on the poll unless I had like asked the client for more money or cut down the number of interviews. And basically I was lucky enough to that point of not ever having to do that to a client and then called up the client and basically said, we're going to have to do 400 interviews, not 500 or 600 of what was originally planned. And I just never wanted to go through that again. It was sort of scarring. And right around that time, change research was rapidly growing. They needed more pollsters and more analysts. And I was getting frozen out of doing some work in New Mexico on the House side. And the timing was right. So Mike hired me to just analyze polls, do some of their projects. If you have phone polls or other stuff to do, fine. Uh, we'll just, just bill an hourly rate. And I got on their platform and was shocked to see how much cheaper it was to acquire data, like by an order of magnitude of just fractions of what I was actually doing. And like, I would get interviews back, which was done in the wrong districts or thrown away when I was on the phone because phone quality was bad. And there was one district in New Mexico, which in 2016, I could only get 140 interviews. It's sort of Northern New Mexico and Navajo country. In 2018, I can get 40 interviews. 
And I tried doing an unchanged research's method of recruiting people online, dynamic online sampling through online ads. And it got over 340. And then realized it's just like, okay, this is powerful. And part of like my last bit of skepticism is like the more polls I do in different places are all sort of my internal checks that I do on a poll. Like, does these make sense? Do the demographic differences make sense? Are we getting the right number of people going in? And over and over, it's just like, there was no appreciable difference in quality, both from the places I was polling in that I'd done phone polling in the past, or sort of the newer areas that change research was going into. And in 2018, like if you didn't have phone time booked at a phone bank months in advance, you couldn't get any polls done. And there was one day I was on vacation with my wife and I thought I had a phone bank scheduled to start a poll the next day. And it turned out like I had it that night. And if I didn't like take it that night and have the project ready, I was gone. I couldn't do it. So I ended up having to like, as we were driving in Lake Tahoe, I had to pull the sample when we were driving in the car. We had to stop at a rest area or like, like a tourist info center to get the client and the candidate on the phone and bang out the draft and deal with all the client's questions. And at one point, Leanne was telling me, it's just like, oh, just forget it. And it was just like, oh, we can't do the poll then. So got it to the phone bank. Like my wife and I were on a ropes course and I was going through my phone to make sure that the script worked. And it's just like, I don't ever want to do this again. And it's like a change research is just like, okay, I want to put the poll in the field. It's like, I program it, launch the ads, like put the poll in the field. Always the problem when you're doing phone polling is you have to do from four to nine o'clock. But if you're a, have a job where you work nights or you're not available at nights, it's just like people watch digital ads, people engage online in the middle of the night. Not is it better to interview 24-7. It's pretty much the only way people should. So the experience of working with change and doing phone polling in 2018 convinced me of just like, this is where the future is going. This is where you can find people. And it's really where you can replicate doing random digit dialing, which is what Harrison taught me, and the process of rigorously going through like random phone numbers, having the largest possible pool. If you can replicate random digit dialing online, that's inherently like can solve a lot of the other problems that were existing. And then change research would do things like nail the Florida governor's primary for Andrew Gillum when no other pollster was doing that. And being able to not only be more accurate in call races, do it more affordably. I don't believe that people should spend a lot of money on polls and like, that's probably not what you're supposed to believe as a pollster or a businessman. But in a lot of ways, most campaigns don't have a lot of money. Most campaigns, when you're in the state legislature, you're making life or death decisions literally now, now that um, Roe v. Wade is overturned. And if you're running a campaign budget of $75,000, $80,000, like, you can't afford $30,000 on a poll. It just doesn't make sense. But the demand for data is not going down. So it's just like it's up to us to find out the ways to best do this. And when it's like a change research, we found that a lot of different candidates and parties were being underserved. Like in Tennessee, the Tennessee Democratic Party was able to do polling where they hadn't before. And Missouri, were able to do polling where stuff wasn't done before. And a whole bunch of different types of candidates and caucuses can get higher quality research through us than what would be currently available at the budgets that they have. That sort of always fit with my like professional goals of research and polling and campaigns. And the change research team has been able to sell to lots of different campaigns and clients and had the opportunity to work for people like Mark Riddle and Future Majority on testing out all sorts of loads of theories on how people are viewing politics, how people are viewing Washington, really focus in depth on swing states. Like instead of getting 500 interviews in Pennsylvania, we can get 2000, be able to do larger sample sizes, more questions. Recent poll that we just did asked questions about like people's experience with narcissists in their life and try to see if there's a relationship between that and their views of DeSantis and Trump. And just sort of adding new experimental questions into surveys, it's just like, well, we have to cut out this, we have to make this trade-off. 
a friend of mine who was running for state house in Oregon last year, like wanted a most important issue question put in the poll and it turns out they took out candidate name recognition and favorabilities to fit it in. And online polling is just like a tremendous freedom to be able to experiment with different things, ask different questions. The cost to add a question is negligible. It's not like two or $3,000 in time. I understood the theory around getting a representative sample through random digit dialing. It was like, we're going to pick a number at random from the phone book. And if we do that 1,200 times, if we get those people, then, you know, by math, we're going to end up with a representative group. And maybe if it isn't, we'll adjust it a little. And I understand that when you're having problems with response, like I've watched the New York Times illustrate their polling and it's like, didn't answer, didn't answer, didn't answer, didn't answer. Finally, we got a, a person and we added it. And that seemed to me pretty clearly like we've gone pretty far away from getting a representative sample because there's got to be a difference between the people picking up a phone and the people who aren't, right? It just stands to reason. I can understand how you can get a bunch of very different people online but I'm not clear about how change research does this, despite talking to Mike about it um, some time ago. Um, how through ads can you have, can you get a group of people that does represent a geographic area or whatever else you're looking for? I mean, I understand like once you get them, it sounds like you, you're finding people who are more willing to provide you the answers, but those people seem like they must not be normal people in some ways, or I don't understand. Tell me a little bit about like how this actually works. I think that's right. I think that's always been the challenge in polling is that the people that are willing to do a survey are not inherently normal. I think one of the more positive things about sort of the American people and the American public is that there's a large number of people who want to give their opinions. You just have to find them. They'll give you plenty of them. And I think a big challenge, tell this to candidates all the time, the big thing that frustrates people most about politics is they're not being listened to and they're not being heard. And polling does provide that option for some people. Those people are inherently different. And that's sort of the thing that you have to understand when you're communicating poll results to the client. I think on some other level, the people who vote are inherently different and weirder than the people who don't vote. Because um, always, like, to judge an election, it's like, who do you think is going to vote? How are they different than the people who are not going to vote? Um, and then the people that you're surveying, how they're different than the people who are going to vote, but are not going to survey. The theory about random digit dialing is... It, just like you want to have the largest possible number of people to want to participate in your survey that you're giving the opportunity to. I think in literature, it's, it's every single person in the society has an equal chance of being put to participate. With response rates, it's harder. And some groups just are harder to reach than others. Younger voters, less likely to do a survey. Black voters, Hispanic voters in some parts of the country are harder to reach. And the theory behind like what we do at Change Research is just through ads and through being online, and the more people see an ad or more a specific targeted group see an ad, the more likely they are to click it. And it is sort of the same process of just like, if you go online and you're scrolling through your feed on LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook or wherever, or anywhere on a website, you do need to see an ad a certain number of times before you might want to click it, which is not really any different than calling the same number two, three, four times, which you should do if you, when you're doing phone polling, not just sort of move on to who's most likely to answer. So it's the same sort of theory behind that with, with ads. It's why we try to make them as neutral as possible, but also interesting. It's that same level of penetration of you need to see something six or seven times before you might like answer a question about it. But the goal is just like people doing surveys are inherently different. 
but we want to be able to broaden that pool as much as we possibly can. And that after the 2016 election and all the different challenges facing polling, it's like the way to respond to that is just like, we went to the voter file because when we get someone, we know a lot about them and then we can make generalizations to other people who look like them. But as that becomes harder and harder, it, you're getting a weirder and weirder group among the people who are willing to take a survey. So the only sort of way around that is to just broaden the base of who you can talk to. And we've done that at Change Research. We've experimented on advertising, not just on social media sites, but broadly all over the internet. We've incorporated text-to-web interviewing, which I, I think every pollster has done. Phone pollsters do a web version that people have text messages to. It's a little freeing when you do an online survey. You can have people pick from lists and have different types of questions that are easier for people to process reading visually than they would over the phone. So we're able to sort of use that power. The challenge that we have at Change Research and that every researcher has is just communication patterns change, people's internet behaviors change, and how do you stay ahead of that and go to the places online where people are going to be or where they're going to migrate to. I mean, it does seem like it gives you a lot more chance to adapt when you're based in software, sort of. You can recode it. You can change your assumptions. You can change who you're advertising to. A lot of ways of putting different parameters on what you're doing, right? Yeah, and a lot, most advertising platforms allow you to be really specific on who you're looking for. And if you find it, it's just like you're going to have to spend five times as much money to find Hispanic women under the age of 35, you can adjust your budgets to do that. I think through some excesses in how these companies have operated in the past, their targeting power, they've made a little bit less powerful. And we have to adapt to that as well. But part of it is just to have as many tools as you can to make sure that you're speaking to everybody. How's Change Research been doing as a company since I talked to Mike, which is really basically since you came on board? Is it still growing? Mike left, right? What, what sort of things are happening? Well, Mike is the chairman of the board, so he's still very active in what we're doing. I We've grown a lot. Um, we've hired more experienced pollsters. I mean, me, we hired... Um, woman, Nancy Zadunkowitz, who was the research director at the DCCC and worked at GQR. She worked with us for a number of years through the 2022 election. We established a related nonpartisan company in bold research that works for local governments and clients who don't really want to do this type of research, but don't want a partisan brand on their research. So our polling team is growing. We have a team of, I think about 12 to 15 pollsters now. We've become a purely online company. Change Research was founded in Palo Alto and Berkeley and had offices in both places and moved into a San Francisco office about five days before the city shut down for COVID. And since then, we went fully virtual. So we have an incredible pollster who is in Jackson, Mississippi. We have engineers who are in Memphis and Seattle. We have other pollsters who are in Seattle and New York and salespeople who are all over the country. And it's allowed us a freedom to grow, but also we were forced to, because of the pandemic, become a fully virtual company and really be able to appreciate the differences of people with different backgrounds in different parts of the country. And when you're trying to be a national pollster, who does local polling in all parts of the country, having people with different experiences, both in their life and in the governments that they live in has been really beneficial for us. But it's just like, we've just done more work with more clients. We move beyond, well, we need a cheap, cheap poll. Let's go to change research. They can just give us numbers. To we can do an in-depth poll really in-depth and be sort of the lead researcher for a campaign or for future majority, like Mark Riddle and I do polls of 150, 200 questions to really go deep on voters. And I think it's just like, as we've grown, it's just, 
working with different types of campaigns, working in different parts of the country, and working with people with different needs, both partisan and nonpartisan, that I think has been the biggest difference over the last several years. If you were kind of comparing that to your time at Hickman Brown and what you were able to provide, is it comparable? Is it better? Is it worse? How how is it different? I would not be arrogant enough to assume that like the polling I'm working doing now isn't is better than RDD phone polling that was done in the 90s. It's just as I've said a lot of times to people, if you want a representative sample, a fully representative phone sample, you need to go into a time machine and go back to the 80s or 90s. Like no one can replicate what was done before when people only had landlines, they didn't have cell phones. I think the value of what we provide to the clients is comparable. We can do long surveys, really go in-depth on voters, test different messages. You just have more tools available when you're old, when you when you cut out the phone entirely, when you're doing ballot initiative polls, you can show the complicated ballot initiative language. It's always been frustrating for me for polling on a ballot initiative and then trying to make it so people can understand it on the phone. And that's not what people who write these ballot initiatives for governments necessarily want. And so it can replicate the experience people have with voting. When you're doing a race with eight candidates running, it's very hard to implement that on the phone. There was a poll that I did once where the Republican's name is Sharon Klosicilic, which is about 20 different letters. And if you were monitoring the interviewing that night, like no one interviewer said it the same way. With online polling, it's what's on the ballot. I don't have to send recordings of pronunciations and then hear them said wrong. I have a lot more power on how my poll is being fielded working at change research than I ever had when it was on the phone. It's just sort of send it to the phone bank and pray that they're doing it right. Try to find ways to figure out how they're doing it wrong that are not the candidate's wife calling and saying that someone called me to do the survey. They said my husband's name wrong. They didn't ask this question and the most horrible deflating calls that you can get. Or also not like having a reporter live tweet all the questions in your poll and comment on them like I had in one of my last phone polls in Santa Fe. As a pollster now, I feel like I have way more control with this method of polling than I ever did any other method. How do you see the competitive landscape? Is there another firm that does similar methodology? Who do you compete with most? I think we compete mostly with the other Democratic pollsters. Um, I'm surprised, and I don't know this, it's like I have a enough, only so many hours of the day, I need to get my own work done, not worry what other people are doing. I've seen some methodological reports. Um, I think Catalyst and GQR were doing sort of an omnibus poll the last cycle, which there was like a dynamic on, they called something similar to ours, dynamic online sampling or some sort of sampling that sounded like what we do. For the most part, people do a lot of panel surveys talked to a friend of mine who used to work at a big political firm and now works on his own. And he said he hadn't done a phone poll since before the pandemic. There's a lot of panel-based surveys, which is still very hard to do at the state ledge local level. We're competing, I think, both for short polls with PPP, for campaign and issue advocacy work with Global Strategy Group, GQR, Heart Research, the normal sort of landscape of Firms that have been around for a while or for several decades, firms that have been around for a decade or two, and local pollsters who know sort of their local area scattered all all throughout the country. Don't sort of focus on that as much. At some point, I think everyone's going to have to do some sort of version of how do we expand the base. Um, And yes, you might not be able to match this interview to the voter file, but People, there are people who you can't match the voter file and their their opinions matter as much as people who you can. And then I think at some point, as technology gets even more sophisticated, be able to use, to be able to work with the voter file and do, use sort of the newer AI software tools along with the voter file to get even sort of deeper views. 
beyond just sort of people's demographics and people's consumer habits, but really be able to do in-depth, accurate psychological profiles of different types of voters that we should have more ability to do in the future than we currently do now. What do you think of the pollster ratings that get issued by like 538? Do you think that they have any validity in sorting out the good and the bad? How can I sort of answer this diplomatically? Um, no, I don't. Um, I, I think their intentions from that are good. If you're on a campaign, what really matters in a survey is never the horse race. It's everything else. The horse race is probably the least most important question. It's understanding the electorate, understanding what messages are going to move, how your candidate is perceived on different issues and value traits versus their opponent. That's what really matters. It's not sort of where I am, but how do I get from A to B? And the poster rating system only reflects the last three weeks before an election and reflects what candidates and campaigns or in most of these cases, universities, or as we've seen in this last election, Republican digital firms that are just putting out numbers to help drive a narrative of the election that turned out to be wrong in 2022. It's become more like gaming the system. Like if I can put out accurate polls in this three-week window and I get a higher grade, then I can claim more accuracy and get business. And if you think the electorate's going to be more Republican than it is. If you're willing to wait your, I'm not saying anyone does this, if you wait your samples to be more Republican to think that's where this narrative is going, and you turn out to be right, you get rewarded with a high grade, but it's not really telling us anything of how you are as a pollster. Are you providing guidance to help a candidate win? I think a lot of the big firms don't have enough polls in that database to even be rated. And you don't want a poll that's based on getting to a number that you think is where things are rather than getting to that number by asking people how they're going to be, right? Exactly. And without naming names, I did notice a lot in 2022, some of the polls that were released the last weekend there was one in Arizona that had Blake Masters ahead. And the, fortunately, the pollster provided crosstabs so you could look at it. It's just like, okay, Mark Kelly's not losing any Democratic support. I think it's like 2% of Democrats were voting for Blake Masters. Mark Kelly had a healthy lead with independents. And it's just like, okay, how is he losing? And then you sort of do the math and it's just like, okay, this is a very Republican sample. And you compare it to past exit polls and compare it to the voter file. And it's just like, there's nothing that justifies believing the electorate is going to be this Republican based in either recent history or that would allow you to think that this is going to happen. I think the same thing in the Wisconsin governor's race. It's like Tony Evers was ahead with independence and was not losing any Democratic support, but was trailing. And it's like, OK, the sample is seven points more Republican than Democratic. I've looked at Wisconsin polls since 1994. They're almost a, always a third, a third, a third. So it's just like, if you think it's going this way and it's going to be more Republican and you're going to be rewarded by 538, if you guess right, that doesn't necessarily mean it's an accurate poll. And then 538 has this theory that you just put more polls in the average, the average will be better. But really, it's like if I'm looking at one poll and like I know that it has a design effect of two, that there's a lot of weighting in this poll and it it shows like let's say Donald Trump is ahead three points of Florida in the 2020 election. And there's another poll that has very little weighting, low design effect, shows Biden up by one. So Trump wins by three, but this poll is heavily weighted. It's reflecting the judgment of the pollster more than what the data is telling me. Like, is the one showing Biden leading inherently wrong or lower quality? I would argue no, especially if it's telling us a lot more about the electorate. But when you're applying just a formula to provide ratings and grades, a poll, even though it produces numbers, is very subjective. And the numbers convey like almost more objectivity than exists in any poll. And if you're going to apply grades and ratings based only on objective measures, 
you're not actually like grading whether this poll is actually useful in what it's set out to do. If you look at change research's grade, we're rated as a B minus. We were initially rated as a C plus based on seven polls, but we did an experimental phase in 2017, including three polls in Alabama that had Roy Moore winning that were consistent, which again, he didn't win, thank God. But to sort of set out is just like, okay, this is a C plus pollster, but not demanding to know standards of transparency, how much you're waiting, whether where this sample was done, whether calls were actually being made. We're part of the APOR Transparency Initiative. We put out very detailed methodological reports that tell you how much we've weighted a poll, that tell you sort of where we got the samples from, what our assumptions are. And to me, that's more important than did you get the horse race right, the period where the horse race is not going to really help a campaign actually win an election. If you're just a political animal following politics, where would you go for the best information about how the electorate's shaking out as you approach an election? I like going to Wikipedia and just seeing the stream of polls that come out. They nicely color code Democrat and Republican. And you can just sort of look at the data stream and it'll tell you a picture. Where in Wikipedia do you find that? Just like 2022 Arizona Senate race. There are people that are helpfully collect all these polls and put them in one in one place. I, I've always thought the data stream is a little more interesting than you have data here and we give this a factor of this. And we're going to sort of assume based on past bias or something that this poll is really telling us this is just like, give me the raw numbers. And I think in terms of like really trying to understand where the electorate is, I mean, there's no one who does better work than the Pew Research Center, really trying to understand voters and issues in the campaigns. Felt good about making the transition going to online polling in late 2018 when Pew Research Center announced they weren't going to do phone polling anymore and they were going to go to their American Trends panel. They've always been the gold standard, to me at least, of high quality research, both in the United States and abroad to sort of understand longer term trends. Um, and that to me is a little more valuable than, yes, is Lindsey Graham going to win by eight or four? It's like, ultimately, who cares? You've been now kind of in this trade for a whole career, a half a lifetime, maybe. What's keeping you in it? Do you anticipate staying with this the rest of the way? Pretty much. Um, key to me, something that my father told me is just like, in your career, you don't want to be bored at a job. And when it's been obvious that I am, like my father and stepmother will tell me, like, you should find something new. The American electorate is always dynamic. Races are always interesting to me. Like a state legislative race in New Mexico is interesting to me as the presidential race. I truly believe that Democrats and progressives have the better policy ideas. It's really going to matter if we cut the Head Start program. Like in 2013, when the sequester happened, there was a news article in Indiana about how a Head Start Center closed and they had a lottery and 80% of the kids who won the lottery could come back to school on Monday. That stuff really matters. And I wish it wasn't true that Democrats and Republicans on things like preschool and investing in kids and education and building our roads and infrastructure, that that wasn't partisan, but but it is. In the 1990s, conservative Democratic legislatures in Oklahoma, South Carolina could pass universal public preschool for four-year-olds and have that legislation stand up through time and not be touched in a meaningful way where those two states have sort of the best preschool participation of any in the country. That really matters. So the debates that are happening in Washington and as radical and extreme as the Republicans have gotten and if they nominate radical extreme MAGA bully Ron DeSantis, who will wants to make America like Florida. And when you look at Florida, where they're going to ban abortion at six weeks and they are going to pass a whole host of extreme dangerous laws, this fight never stops. And like we're always going to need good data. We're always going to need good analysis as Democrats and progressives and I'm too old now to really sort of learn to do anything new and different. I'm always amazed at the R and Python skills and the stuff that our new recently college graduate associates come in with. 
they're like way, way smarter and more savvy and more in tune. Um, could do this job far better than me at a much younger age. And I think being able to work with people like that and be able to work at an innovative firm like Change Research, it's a dream come true. So it's just like sort of knock on wood and hope it doesn't change. Well, it's, it's always good to hear when someone's found a good spot. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? I don't think so. We t- talked about a lot of different people in my life and career and people I work with now, and there are too many of them to name. Um, so I'm not going to go through and give credits. I just thank you for the opportunity to talk, to talk about this and the work you do in bringing interesting people talking about their life and career and work has been really illuminating for me. I think I've told you that I've known more guests on your show than anything else that I've ever listened to and just listened to the long Mike Podhorzer interview. And it was just fascinating. So I think like you're doing a lot of like really amazing work, sort of illuminating every sort of corner of this industry and this business from the nonprofit advocacy world to the consulting world. And just want to thank you for, for what you do and what you've added to this. That's very kind of you. Glad you're doing what you're doing. Anything else you want to say? Uh, No, just thank you very much. That was Stephen. He is at changeresearch.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.